Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This content is not suitable for children and listener discretion is advised. Pensioners Harry and Meghan Twos spent the morning of the 26th of July 1993 like most other Mondays. Harry 67 and Meghan 65 left their farmhouse on Lanharry Meadow early that morning, driving just a few miles towards Tolbert Green where there was a Tesco's. They were getting their shopping and errands done early as the weather was set to turn. The village of Lanharry, southwest of Pontypridd and west of Cardiff, South Wales, had small local shops, but that was it. It was isolated, quiet, and not much ever really happened. After getting some groceries, they headed back towards home, stopping in at the Lanharry post office just before noon. Driving the same roads they had done for the last 30 years, their grey Land Rover turned into the farm's driveway the entrance covered with large trees and shrubs. The farmhouse was shielded from the road by a hedge, small outbuildings and farm sheds. After going inside, food was put away, a meal was cooked on the stove for lunch and turned off, and their best china was taken out of the cupboard and set on the table in the sitting room. At 1.30pm, the Twos' neighbour Joyce Davis heard two distinct gunshots 30 seconds apart. She was well aware of Harry's problem with rabbits and often heard him shooting them in his garden as they had been continually eating his cabbages. The neighbour got on with her day. My name's Benjamin Fitton from They Walk Among Us. Welcome to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. That evening, Cheryl, Harry and Meghan's 34-year-old daughter, telephoned from Orpington, Kent, where she lived with her boyfriend, Jonathan. Cheryl spoke to her parents every day, sometimes even twice a day. That morning, she had tried to call, but there was no answer. She continued phoning throughout the day, and by the evening, when there was still no answer, she had become concerned. They were always home when Coronation Street was on. It was their favourite show and they never missed it. Harry had recently undergone a hernia operation, and he had also suffered a rare viral infection, which left him deaf in one ear. Cheryl became concerned that he may have fallen or become ill. She called the family doctor, and then the hospital in case he ended up there. With no luck, at 9pm she phoned her parents' neighbour, Owen Hopkins, and asked if he wouldn't mind popping around and checking on them. While Cheryl waited on the phone, the neighbour walked over to the Twos' farm and knocked on the door. When there was no answer, he tried the door and found it open. Inside, he found the lunch, 
cooked on the stove but not eaten, and he noticed the good crockery on the table in the sitting room, but no sign of Harry or Megan. When the neighbour phoned Cheryl, she knew something was really wrong. But she had to work the following morning, and so she asked her boyfriend Jonathan if he would drive the 200 miles to Wales to check on them. He agreed and set off sometime between 10 and 11pm. At 1am he phoned Cheryl from Lee Delamere Services, 66 miles short of Lanharry. By then, Cheryl had received word from police that they had broken into the farm. The weather had got worse, and according to Jonathan, the last couple of hours slowed him down. He didn't arrive at the farm until 3am. He was greeted by the local police who had been called by the neighbour. A search of the property was underway. Jonathan was soon told the body of a man had been located in the cowshed. Tired and likely exhausted, he didn't ask if it was Harry. He asked little in the way of questions, and when guided out of the rain into the sitting room, he sat alone silently at the table in front of the good china the couple had laid out earlier. When Megan's body was also discovered in the cowshed, Jonathan told the police that he wanted to be the one to break the news to Cheryl and to hold off telling her. Jonathan got back in his car to drive the 200 miles back to Kent. At 7am before he made it back, police phoned Cheryl informing her that they had located two bodies and they believed they were her parents. They'd both been shot in the head at close range. Cheryl waited for Jonathan to return and then in floods of tears got into Jonathan's car to drive straight back to Wales. At daybreak, detectives were able to assess the crime scene and determine exactly what had happened. The two-storey farmhouse adjoining cowshed and outbuildings were all cornered off, but it was clear that the crime scene had not been preserved. When police had arrived the night before, they had not expected the call-out to end in a double murder. Neighbours, police and Jonathan had all been allowed access to the house and property, therefore contaminating the scene. During the forensic search that day, a small amount of blood was located at the farmyard gate, but by that time, it was deemed contaminated. Initially, a murder-suicide was considered, but it didn't take long for this to be ruled out when drag marks, believed to be from a body, were seen going from near the house to the shed. Their quiet little village had a double murderer on their hands and a double murderer out there somewhere. After a ballistics expert and a pathologist were brought in, a full crime scene analysis took place and they determined the following. Harry was shot just inside the door of the cow shed, after which he was placed in a trough. He was then covered over with the hay bales and tarpaulin sheets in order to conceal the body. Megan was shot on the other side of the house, possibly near the corner of the kitchen, possibly she was trying to escape. There was a single drag mark on the ground along the front of the house, consistent with dragging a body, but there was no evidence of this on her body or clothing. Megan's body was then also placed in the cow shed and covered with a carpet. It was clear that the evidence to the cow shed was out of view of neighbours. A number of heavy tools kept in the doorway would have had to have been moved to get in, and it appeared they had later been replaced. Harry and Meghan were each shot once in the back of the head with a shotgun from approximately two to three feet away. Harry had previously owned a shotgun, but it had been stolen ten months earlier when they were robbed. 
the shots that were used were said to be number seven shot. No cartridges were located and it was established that this was not the type of shot Harry ever used. No evidence would be found to say that the shotgun stolen was the exact one used to kill the couple. The shooting appeared professional at first, but upon further examination, ballistic experts established that it may have just been determination that was needed to carry out the killing successfully. Because of the amount of physical damage that they each sustained from the shotgun, and the amount of blood and tissue matter in the shed, the killer would likely have been splattered with blood and body tissue. But apart from the blood found at the farm gate, none was found anywhere else. When going public, Detective Superintendent Colin Jones stated that no motive was evident and no murder weapon had been located. They were working on the theory that the couple had disturbed an intruder. When the forensic pathologist Dr. Clayden examined the body, he noticed that at the time rigor mortis was beginning to wear off, allowing him to determine a time of death to be sometime during the previous late afternoon or evening. Without a definitive time, it would be impossible to exclude the chance that death occurred at 1.30pm when the neighbours heard two gunshots. While examining Harry's body, hypostasis was observed on both the front and back of his body. This is the settling of blood in certain areas of the body, seen as a purple or red discoloration of the skin. It begins to set in within 20 or 30 minutes after death, and the patches increase over the next three to six hours. These patches help forensic investigators determine whether a body has been moved or not after death. If a body is found face down at a crime scene, but hypostasis is present on the victim's back, it can be assumed they were on their back originally, and somewhere between three and six hours later, they were moved onto their front. Harry's body had signs of hypostasis on both his front and back, but much more evident on the side he was not found lying on. This led to the conclusion that sometime between three to four hours after death, Harry was moved. The level of hypostasis is also important in determining time of death, and when Megan's body was found to have a much less amount, it led them to question whether she was killed some time after Harry. Both of the couple's stomach contents showed a well-digested meal, assumed to have been breakfast, but no recent food consumed. Inside the house, there was no evidence of intrusion, nor was anything believed to have been stolen. There was money and valuable jewellery in the house left untouched. Harry had £75 on him that was also left. When police first arrived the night before, they had not suspected anything serious to have happened. The entire crime scene, including the house, had not been secured, thus making the house a contaminated scene. There was also one person who had been allowed to sit inside the house overnight who may have implicated himself in the murder. The food cooking on the stove had been turned off. The crockery brought out of the cupboard was never used for everyday use. According to Cheryl, it wouldn't come out if she was visiting, and the last time she remembers it being used was two years earlier, after a family funeral. So why was the crockery out? Were they expecting someone? Or did someone stop by unannounced as they were cooking their lunch, or arrived early for a planned visit before they had chance to eat, prompting them to switch the stove off and begin making tea? When a white shirt of Harry's was found laid out on the bed, this bolstered the theory that he was either planning to go out somewhere smart or they were expecting someone. 
there was a teacup and saucer set up in the sitting room with tea in it, but no sugar. The house was fingerprinted, every object and surface in the kitchen and sitting room dusted for prints. The teacup saucer that had tea in it had prints from Megan, a print from Harry on top of the saucer, a print from Jonathan, Cheryl's boyfriend. This print was virtually in the same place as the print of Megan's, but it could not be determined which print overlapped the other. Only Harry's print would be found on the cup itself, and no print of Jonathan's was recorded. There was also no evidence that any of the tea had been consumed. This fingerprint on the saucer set the wheels in motion for a serious investigation into Jonathan. But at 3am on the night of the murder, Jonathan was left in the house alone and was seen to be sitting at the dining table. He didn't think he touched the saucer, but it has to be considered that he may have without realising or remembering. He did remember that he picked up a tomato off the table at the time. When asked about the specific good china, both Jonathan and Cheryl remembered it being used at the funeral a couple of years before. And Jonathan may have used it then, but it would have been washed after. Without being able to determine the order of prints, there was a chance Jonathan's print was left on the saucer two years earlier, or even on a visit since, and Harry and Meghan's prints placed over the top that day. Harry and Meghan were a well-known and well-liked couple in their small community. The murders came as a total shock, not just to the police, but to the entire country. There just seemed no reason to murder this couple in their 60s, retired farmers who led a quiet life and kept to themselves. Cheryl was their only child, and they lived for her. They were devastated when she moved to the south of England, but they were proud of her. So tight were their values, and Megan a devoted churchgoer, that when Cheryl had moved in with Jonathan out of wedlock in Orpington, Kent, it was kept a secret from Harry and Megan. They did eventually find out, but then themselves kept it quiet from everyone they knew. Even around ten years later at the time of the murder, many in the community still didn't know Cheryl and Jonathan, by then both in their mid-thirties, lived together. Cheryl and Jonathan met while studying. Cheryl studied business and Jonathan, also from Wales, was studying accounting. Although their rental flat was 200 miles away, they visited regularly and had great relationships with both sets of parents. When other family visited Cheryl, Jonathan would leave the flat and they kept up the pretense that she lived alone. Cheryl had recently earned a small salary as a market researcher. Jonathan had been trying to make it as a recruitment consultant but his attempts had been failing and he wanted to start his own marketing business. Cheryl was ready to set up a business herself and at the time Cheryl's parents were murdered, they were looking for an office to set up in Orpington. Police, looking at motive, began fixing their gaze on Jonathan. It became known that the couple had fallen behind on their house repayments and were about to lose their flat. Harry and Meghan had a £150,000 life insurance policy and it became the police focus. Jonathan Jones became the focus of the investigation. By this time, 60 officers were on the case and they were building up to an arrest. Meanwhile, Cheryl and Jonathan standing as a united front made an emotional public appeal. According to the couple, he had spent the afternoon in Orpington looking for office space. The Friday before, Jonathan had told work colleagues he wasn't feeling that well 
and he planned to take Monday off to look for new premises. According to him, he left the flat on the Monday morning at 8.30am, returning at 1pm or 1.30pm, then left again for four and a half hours during the afternoon. The problem was that when investigators tried to find proof he had been making inquiries around town, they couldn't find any. There were close to 10 hours they needed to account for. Police officers began taking the journey from Orpington to Lanharry to support their theory that Jonathan had driven to Wales to murder his girlfriend's parents in order for her, and eventually him, to receive their life insurance money. They also looked into whether he had gone by train. The different journey times matching the schedule put the morning trip at around 2 hours and 10 minutes and the return afternoon trip between 3 hours and 5 hours, so an estimated maximum return drive or train time of just over 7 hours possible in the 10 hours he admitted to being out of the flat. While establishing his alibi, Jonathan said he had a conversation with a lift engineer in the basement of his building at around 1.30pm. He guessed the time because when he returned to the flat, the starting theme music for Neighbours was on. He then said he watched cricket on television until around 3pm when he left again for another almost five hours. He recalled discussions that were had on the cricket and then stopping for lunch. A few things made the police unsure. Jonathan didn't return a videotape due back which was along the route from his flat. The lift engineer and two others who were also working that day didn't recall any conversation with him, although the information regarding them working in the basement was correct. They also were sure they were out of the building for lunch between 12.30 and 1.45pm, but this could never be confirmed. A major issue was that the exact time frame the experts suggested the murders took place were the exact times Jonathan was stating he was at home and not out of the flat, 1.30 to 3pm. During a later interview with police, Jonathan remembered that when taking the lift up to the flat, he shared the lift with a child. Cheryl stated when she got home that evening from work that Jonathan wasn't there and she couldn't tell whether he had been in the flat that day or not but she thought the flat seemed tidier than when she had left that morning. When scrutinising Jonathan's journey from Orpington to Wales, the night of the murder, they expressed their concerns at his suggestion of leaving between 10pm and 11pm and arriving at 3am. This couldn't be possible. Instead of the journey taking five hours as he said, even with the breaks which he had a time receipt for and the bad weather, they believed five hours was out of the question. During one police interview, Cheryl and Jonathan were both called in to the station. Shortly after they were separated, Cheryl described to the media that the detectives kept her for hours of questioning and kept suggesting she was ducking all of their questions. They were questioning why she didn't make the drive to Wales that night, that if anything ever happened to her parents she would be there, so why that night did she not go herself or join Jonathan on the drive? They then told her they believed Jonathan had killed her parents. During the investigation, the neighbour who heard the gunshots was vocal in her horror that she hadn't thought to call police that afternoon. Other members of the tiny community had come forward with tidbits of information and sightings, and none of them seemed to have any relation to Jonathan. There was evidence that Harry and Meghan had visited a solicitor about a contested will in the days before their death. Numerous witnesses came forward regarding a day in late June, a few weeks before the murders. 
a man had been seen walking along a road near the farm wearing a beige trench coat and dark sunglasses. Two witnesses believed the man was carrying a hold-all bag, and as they looked at him as they drove by, he sheltered his face from them. The man had been suspicious enough that one of the witnesses called the police and gave a description of him. He was then believed to have been seen at a nearby train station. During the investigation into the double murder, one of these witnesses would phone the police as she believed she had recognised Jonathan Jones as the man she had seen. Jonathan did confirm he was in the area that day, but was with Harry hay baling on the farm after hitchhiking to Pontypreeth from Kent. He denied, however, that he was wearing a trench coat and glasses. Police ascertained that Jonathan did own a trench coat of the same description, and many friends and acquaintances would attest to have seen him wearing it. But when questioned, both he and Cheryl would say that it went to Oxfam around a year earlier. Police were adamant that Jonathan was the culprit and was the one to steal Harry's shotgun months prior, storing it with the plan to use it later down the line. With the fingerprint evidence, no matter how tainted that was, the lack of a concrete alibi, the apparent strange reaction of Jonathan when told about the murders, and the instances that police believe both he and Cheryl were fabricating and omitting information, they gained a warrant for his arrest. Two months after the murder of Harry and Meghan Twos, Jonathan and Cheryl received a knock at the door of their flat. Cheryl opened the door and a group of police officers walked in. They took Jonathan to the kitchen and placed him under arrest for the murder of Cheryl's parents. Cheryl, believing they had made a terrible mistake, naively thought it would all be sorted and Jonathan would be home in 24 hours. But instead, he would remain behind bars until his trial. The police informed the public that they were not looking into anyone else in connection to the murders. The belief was that Jonathan had planned the murders in cold blood, all for the £150,000 inheritance Cheryl was set to acquire. After falling behind in the flat repayments, something which Cheryl didn't know at the time, they believed he was adamant he was going to get ahead. They suggested that he caught the train from Orpington to Pontypridd that morning and surprised the couple while they were making their lunch, leading them to get out the good china and make tea. After the murders, he returned on the train, arriving as usual at 7.30pm. Cheryl, however, argued that they would never bring the china out for Jonathan. They would have given him a mug. It was of the police opinion that there was an unexplained period of at least an hour which Jonathan could have used to move the weapon and blood-covered clothing from the temporary place to somewhere more permanent or somewhere to destroy it. Their biggest problem there was no forensic evidence to link Jonathan to the crime scene. There was no forensic evidence found in his car when tested, something that would be expected had he used it that day or got back in it for the night drive. The fingerprint was a flimsy piece of evidence because of the contaminated scene, although when it came to trial, this would be brought in. Jonathan was painted as a motivated and greedy soon-to-be son-in-law intent on annihilating them for enough money to secure his and their daughter Cheryl's future. Nothing could make them believe otherwise. Meanwhile, Cheryl was adamant he didn't do it and continued to argue that Jonathan's relationship with her parents had been an entirely positive one. She stood by Jonathan as he pleaded not guilty and would do so through every day of his trial without wavering. During the 11-week trial, the prosecution hammered home all the circumstantial evidence that they had been gathering over almost two years. 
the defence presented the lack of scientific evidence, the lack of real motive, and the unlikely killer they believed Jonathan to be. He was of good character and had never spoken negatively towards Harry or Meghan. He had also never used a shotgun. They argued that the investigation had tunnel vision, that they focused solely on Jonathan and had missed many opportunities to investigate other leads, including the neighbour who had heard the shots, had also heard Harry have what she described as a furious Barney with someone outside the farm eight weeks before the murder. Seven years earlier, there had been another unsolved double murder 70 miles away. A brother and sister also shot in the head for no apparent reason. A few days before the murder, a Japanese 4x4 was seen driving towards the Tooze's property, a car that had never been identified and could not have been driven by Jonathan because he was at work. There was a vague sighting of a Land Rover matching the Tooze's car driving in the area at 2.30pm on the day. On the 23rd of July, Harry was seen with a 40-50 to year old man, described as respectable looking. This man was never traced. On the 26th of July, a Suzuki was seen by a witness speeding over the cattle grid at the bottom of the lane, leaving the Two's farm. He was also not traced. On both the main house doorframe and the garden gate at the rear of the house, finger or palm prints were found which were never matched to either the victims, Cheryl, Jonathan or the 400 other people checked over. When the jury announced they had reached their verdict, it was the general consensus that there was no way Jonathan would be found guilty. There just wasn't enough evidence. So when the jury announced his guilt 10 to 2, even the judge made it plainly clear he was shocked at the verdict they had come to. Nevertheless, Jonathan Jones was sentenced to life in prison. Immediately following, the judge, Mr Justice Rougier, released his confidential remarks about the trial, revealing that his belief, although the verdict of guilt was made, was that the prosecution's case was weak. He said if he had been a member of the jury, he would have been conscious of significant doubt. He conveyed his shock at the contrast between the total ruthlessness and pitless determination of whoever killed Harry and Meghan compared to the man who sat in the dock and for four and a half days in the witness box. He made it extremely clear that he did not believe that there was nearly enough evidence to convict Jonathan of the murders. In a letter he wrote to the Home Secretary of his concerns regarding the conviction, he said, I am bound to record that the verdict caused me some surprise. There are undoubtedly many suspicious features about Jones's case, but at the same time many items of evidence upon which the prosecution relied as pointers to guilt had fallen decidedly flat. Before the murders of her parents and the conviction of her boyfriend of 12 years, Cheryl was a quiet and shy person. She was vocal about her dismay at the guilty verdict and vouched to fight to get Jonathan out of jail. She offered a £25,000 reward for information. Relationships within her family broke down as a result of her support for Jonathan and her belief that the real killer was still out there. A member of their legal team went to Kent with the Welsh rugby team jacket that Jonathan wore the day he says he was in Orpington looking for offices. Their hope was to track down people who would support his alibi. They were on a mission to appeal. A year later, Jonathan Jones fought his conviction on 20 grounds of appeal, including the judge wrongly admitting certain evidence, including that from a contaminated scene 
and also at least 10 grounds alleging misdirections or non-misdirections in the summing up. Fresh evidence was also brought in as to the times and whereabouts of the lift engineers in Orpington from that day, making Jonathan's description of events completely plausible. There was lurking doubt as to the safety of the conviction. On the 25th of April 1996, three appeal judges at the conclusion of the arguments allowed the appeal, quashing the convictions and making it clear that a retrial was inappropriate. Jonathan Jones was discharged and free to go. Jonathan and Cheryl walked arm in arm out of the court before embracing in a long kiss for the media. Jonathan said, I am delighted to be free. I had never given up hope. Cheryl said, it is a victory for love and truth. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2000, with the murders legally unresolved, two reviews of the case were set up, one headed by retired detective superintendent Malcolm Ross and the other by an independent advisory group. The results of these two reviews have never been made public and there is no intention to do so as their publication could affect a future trial should there be one. In 2003, as the 10th anniversary of the deaths of Harry and Meghan came around, the police received an anonymous letter, the contents of which have not been published. They did release a plea for the letter writer to come forward and acknowledge that they believed the letter was genuine. That year, a new search of the area found shotgun cartridges in a flooded iron ore mine shaft on nearby land. They were in a black holdall bag with red stitching a zip, and Team Daywa written in gold lettering. 
Barrels of a shotgun were also discovered by a member of the public in a quarry near the farm. The investigation kicked into gear again and also worked around further witness accounts of cars seen in the area, but eventually slowed again. In 2006, new witnesses came forward about the car. In 2008, South Wales Police said that all lines of inquiry in the case had been exhausted and the investigation was scaled down, though not closed. Cheryl and Jonathan went on to marry and have two children and over the years have been kept informed of the investigation as it slowly continued. Cheryl said of the anniversary, Never a day goes by in these 20 years when I don't think of them. When I think of the two of them gone, they were robbed of life. The murders of Harry and Meghan Twos remain unsolved to this day. I'm Catherine Kelly, host of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, Murder Town. Join me next Monday at 9pm for my visit to Tamworth with its picturesque gardens, enchanting castle and sinister secrets. For more information on the series, head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for Crime and Investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown. The MurderTown podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton, written by Anna Priestland, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by James Colopy. 